Good morning. You wouldn't mind opening your Bibles to Psalm chapter 1. We're pulling that up on your phone if you'd like. Um, it's great to be with you. My name's uh, Ben Davidson, and I was mentioned I'm an associate pastor at Bethany Community Church up the road, and um, I have uh, one wife and four kids, because the other way around would be way too confusing. Um, so my wife and, and I have been married for 22 years. We have uh, four kids that are 19, 17, 15, and 10. And so it's never a dull moment at our house. And uh, when I was contacted to come in and speak, I was glad, glad to do so. I enjoyed my last time I came, and, and uh, to be back is a great privilege. So thank you for uh, warmly greeting me, and I send you greetings not only from my family, but from Bethany Community Church as well. And uh, our leadership uh, gladly sent me here, and, and know they uh even one elders i was leaving said that he was praying for for me and for us today as we gathered for worship here at first baptist church so it is uh great to be here with you um i know uh some might mistake me for josh monda with my haircut uh but the distinguishing point is my beard isn't as long as his um so i do my best but i can't get as long as josh's um so but anyway, if you're, if you're there at, at Psalm 1, why don't I go ahead and read uh, the entire psalm to us here as we, as we begin our, our time in, in learning from God's Word. Starting in Psalm 1, verse 1. It said, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, as has already been prayed, we, we just ask uh, for your help as we look at your word now. We recognize that we are people in need and in need of instruction from the Holy Scriptures. And so we bow to you and thank you for these words and ask that you would teach us this morning. We pray all this in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me read to you a story that I I share with permission. It goes like this. There I sat, unopened Bible in my hands, feeling intimidated, alone, and almost berated. Across the room was a counselor, a man I was trying to trust. I'd never been in counseling before. I assumed this must just be what it's like. Difficult. I chose a counselor with a Christian background because somehow I knew that the word of God held the answers to the healing to healing the brokenness in my life. For years, I tried to figure out how to make my life work on my own. I went to Bible study after Bible study, trying to put the pieces together, but I failed. In my own strength, I couldn't bring it all together in an effective way and and live it out. So I turned to the professionals for help. Although at this point, I could not have clearly identified my problem, I did know that the answer was somewhere in my Bible which remained unopened during my first session and on my lap. By the end of my second session, my head was spinning. What was happening? 
I thought I was doing the right thing by seeking what I assumed to be godly counsel, but there was no relief in sight, only more questions and confusion. By the grace of God, I ran out of money and had to cancel my next three appointments. So here we find a woman whose testimony is used by permission, trying to find answers for, for her life. Uh, she found a counselor, thinking that the answers, a counselor who believed the answers came outside of God's word. In fact, encouraging her towards unbiblical advice during her counseling sessions. This counselor believed that he had superior answers to the scripture. This kind of feeds our flesh a little bit. It feeds our pride, maybe, a little bit, that we like to think that we know more. We like to think we know more than God. Our flesh tells us to delight in this, to delight in things that we come up with that are altogether separate from God's word. So my main point for this morning, based in Psalm 1, is this. The scripture provides the believer with life-giving counsel and joy. The scripture provides the believer with life-giving counsel and joy. And when I say believer here, uh, always when there's a gathering of, of, of people, I always like to spell out what that means to be a believer. It just means four simple words. God, man, Jesus, response. There is a God who is holy and just and has to punish sin. Man is a sinner and justly deserves to have a death penalty on their life. But Jesus came to pay that penalty for us so that we don't have to pay that death penalty ourselves. And we can respond in faith and repentance and respond to that free gift he gives us, that penalty to be paid, and have a relationship with him today and be assured of our place in heaven. And the scripture has been given to those of us who would say, yes, that's true of me. I am a believer in Jesus Christ. And it gives us counsel and joy. So this morning we'll be looking at a psalm. Now for some of you, you know that psalm is poetry. And when you hear the word poetry, I've lost you already. Uh, I don't know if many of us spend a lot of time reading books of poetry. But let me keep you with me here for a minute. Because if you take up all the poetry in all of the Bible, it's equal the length of the New Testament. Did you know that? The Bible is filled with poetry. If I still haven't won you over, maybe I I can relate to you in in this way. The other day I was driving along and I was surfing the radio dial and I found myself on an 80s station. Now I'm a child of the 80s. I'm 43 years old. And as these songs began to play, I knew song after song after song. Now, don't judge me there, okay? They weren't all Christian songs, okay? I'll admit, they weren't all Christian songs, but maybe you recognize, I've just called to say, I love you, or what's love got to do with it? I knew so many of those words. Why? Because songs and the poetic nature of songs have a way of making their ways into our hearts. And that's what's so great about the book of Psalms. They're written as songs, that, we, they, that can make their way into our hearts. It takes God's instructions and plants them deep, deep within us. So Psalm 1 has been called the gateway to the entire book of Psalms. And so I'm excited to be teaching from it today. And the focus that this chapter brings to the entire 
book of Psalms is that those who want to worship God with a genuine heart must embrace God's law. So again, my main point, the scripture provides the believer with life-giving counsel and joy. So let's look at a man here who receives this life-giving counsel and joy, the blessed man. And that's my first point, the blessed man delights. And so if you have your notes with you, that's point one, the blessed man delights. The term blessed here means truly happy. And actually the term is a plural term here. So it can be translated the blessedness, overwhelming blessing, overwhelming happiness. And the blessed man delights in that. So let's go to letter A underneath point one. Let's talk about what the blessed man doesn't do. So what he doesn't do in letter A under point one. The blessed man doesn't guide his life based on instruction from those that reject Christ or think Christ is not enough. So let's look back at verse one, if you still have your Bible open or your app open there. Verse one says, blessed is the man who, three things here, walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Now, there's two ways people have interpreted this first verse. The first one is that this is a progression that you see. He walks, then he stands, then he sits. The second way people have interpreted this passage is that those are just all parallels one of the other. They all mean the same thing. It's just three ways of saying the same thing. So let's walk through both of these interpretations, and I'll be honest with you, I'm okay with either one. And we can see where you want to land on your interpretation here. So first, the progression of walking, standing, and then sitting. It says, walk not in the counsel of the wicked. There is a counsel to take from the wicked, right? But is it good or bad? It's bad, right? That's not a good counsel to take. In this context, who are the wicked that the psalmist is writing about? Well, it's those who are outside of Israel. It's those who are outside of the covenant of God. It could also mean those who are within Israel, who are making poor choices. But time and again, we see examples of Israel taking counsel from outside sources and it not going well. Let me give you an example from Judges 2, verses 11 through 15. It says, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods and from among the gods of other peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. It says later in verse 15, when they marched out, the Israelites, the hand of God was against them for harm as the Lord had warned, as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. So you see here the people of Israel taking counsel from the wicked and it not going well. So first is that walking not in the counsel of the wicked is what the blessed man does not do. Secondly, he doesn't stand in the way of sinners. He doesn't stand in the way of sinners. He knows that if he begins to walk, if he begins to walk, he'll be tempted to slow down and stand and take in more of this counsel of the wicked. The blessed man won't tolerate this. 
Now, standing in the way doesn't mean that he stands in the way of the wrong counsel, like trying to block it. It means that he gets into the stream of that wicked counsel and takes it in more and more. Well, as he begins to slow down from his walk, he gets into the stream and stands. And then it says in Psalm 1, he sits. He sits in the seat of scoffers people that mock God. He entertains spending time sitting with those who make a mockery of God. People that don't believe there is a God or think that it's foolish or ignorant to do so. That's the progression side. The other interpretation, these are all synonyms of each other. They're all just kind of a parallelism of of, of each line. And you see that all throughout the book of Psalms. In fact, in Psalms 2-4, it says, The one enthroned in heaven laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. Same meaning, just giving another view of it. You see it in Psalm chapter 3, verse 1. O Lord, how many are my foes, many are rising against me. So whether it's a parallelism, or if you see it as a progression, I'm comfortable with either. I think the key for us here today is to see the danger of listening to other counselors and being influenced by worldly counsel that's not from God's word. Now, if we struggle with that, we're in good company. If we go back to the book of Genesis, we see Adam and Eve struggling with the same thing. Here we have two people that I would probably say are the brightest people ever to walk the face of the earth. Do you think when God made Adam and Eve, he made people that weren't very bright? He probably made the smartest, intellectually bright people ever to walk the earth. And yet, in their incredible minds, they still needed special revelation from God. And God gives them commands to follow and blessings to hear. And he says, don't do this one thing, right? Don't eat of that tree, the knowledge of good good and evil. And they start to hear wicked counsel. In Genesis 3, Satan says, did did God actually say, don't eat of that tree? And began to put seeds of doubt in Adam and Eve's minds of that clear counsel straight from God's mouth. And they bought into that worldly counsel and they ate of that fruit. If we bring this to the day, The wicked are those who are not believers. And we can sometimes take in some of that counsel that's not from God's mouth. You can think we have two choices to make. In this direction is counsel from God's word that we know leads us to delight and to joy. Or we can go this direction and take counsel from the word and walk in the counsel of the wicked and start to stand with the wicked and then sit in the seat of a scoffer. Sometimes we don't see how much that worldly counsel influences our lives. We don't recognize. I I didn't recognize. As a believer in Jesus Christ in my young walk with God, for example, I did not really understand the sufficiency of Scripture. That Scripture speaks to the challenges of life. It's not that I didn't believe in it. I just never heard. I had this pull of, I had Christian godly counsel coming into my life and also had worldly counsel saying, 
that's not enough. The Bible's not enough. You need to listen to me also. And then as I heard about this idea of the Bible having answers, Scripture began to come to life to me more. A very familiar scripture to many of you is 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. I'll read it. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Now, sometimes when I read this to my kids, I end that passage differently. I say, so that the man of God may be competent, equipped for some good works. That the man of God may be competent, equipped for most, but not all, good works. No, what's, what's Paul write to Timothy here? For every good work. Every. What does every mean in the Greek here? You know what it means? Every. <laughs> it means every. It means every good work. And so we see here that God is saying that his word that's breathed out by him is profitable and competent and equipping us for every good work. It is reliable. Well, I, I have an elementary education degree from Illinois State University. I had a professor there that was held in high esteem in the literary portion of our campus. And he had insights that he liked to give from his life and into spiritual things. Uh, He was a devout atheist and a reader of Friedrich Nietzsche. And student after student would tell of his impact on their lives for good. How his counsel helped shape their thinking and their decisions and their very lives. Now I don't say this with any pride in my heart. But the Bible describes him as foolish. The Bible describes him as futile caught by the Lord. 1 Corinthians 3 is where I get that from. It says, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. One pastor said this, the blessed man is not to walk in the drumbeats contrary to God's word. He does not be, become accustomed to the philosophies of continually walking by, standing with, and sitting among. So I needed to resist the, the, the temptation as a college student to not walk, stand, and sit with the mockers. Psalm 1 holds forth the blessedness of godliness, encouraging the godly to pursue the way of God over and against the way of the world as the expositor's Bible commentary. The blessed man delights in what he doesn't do. Now, let me go to point one, letter B. He also delights because of what he does. That's the next blank. He delights because of what he does. How does one get to the point where they don't follow the counsel of the wicked and move forward? Let's look at verse 2, if you have your Bible still open. It says, But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. The overflowing blessedness for the believer today is the law of the Lord. God's instruction. 
he meditates on it. He actively ponders it. I was once standing next to our senior pastor and someone asked him, how much time do you take preparing your sermon? You know what he said? Every minute of every day for seven days. He's actively pondering the scripture he's about to teach. He's constantly thinking about it day and night. The ESV Study Bible has this note. The ideal of facing every situation, even if it is mundane, with a view to please the Lord, is knowing and following his word. Why do we need to do this? Because we're tempted to walk in that stream and to stand and slow down and take in more and to sit with the mockers. I mentioned earlier my professor at ISU and I believe God still used him in my life to rattle my thinking and to evaluate what I really believe and how much of the scriptures I believe. Is this Bible really worth me meditating on it day and night? And I'm thankful that God got me to the point where I answered that yes. You see, the logical reasoning of of believing the sufficiency of scripture that played out in my mind was this. Some would say to live the Christian life, you need the Bible and something else. That the Bible alone is not sufficient for living out the Christian life. That you need other counsel from man to live it out. Now, please don't hear me say that we disregard medical advice or anything of that nature. Okay, Uh, But when it comes to even pursuing medical advice, the scripture speaks to that. That it's wise to do so in James in the end of the book of James. So I began to think through, okay, if if some say it's the Bible and this, but others say it's the Bible and that, does it seem logical that God would keep us guessing here? What's the Bible and what for you? And it's that for you. And how do I know who's right and who's wrong? God took me to Romans 8, 32, and it says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how he will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Some things? Every once in a while he'll give us something? No, he graciously gives us all things. And so if if the God of, of, of Jesus who sent his son to to pay the penalty for my sin and graciously lavishes on me mercy and forgiveness, would he then say to Ben Davidson, well, good luck from here. Hope it works out for you, that whole salvation thing. No, he, he lavishly gives me his word and says, I've given you everything you need for life and godliness. And I read passages like 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. And it says he equips me for every good work. Every good work. So is the Bible worthy of my meditation day and night? Yes. Yes, a thousand times yes. It's worthy of my meditation. Recently I came across a quote from John Piper. I'm sure Pastor Josh quotes John Piper every once in a while here. Dr. Piper said this, the legacy I want to leave as I leave this earth, the legacy I want to leave is utter, utter devotion to the particularities of all of the Bible. 
I want to be known as a man of the book. Well, the blessed man, what else does he do? Look at verse 3 with me for a moment. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. Because he does not do the things mentioned previously in verse 1, he takes wiser counsel in the commandments of God's word. He's taken it in. He's meditated on it day and night. It permeates all that he is. If you bump into him, scripture oozes out onto you. Because he's so permeated with God's word. Because he does not do the thing we have previously looked at, he delights in God's instruction. And he's described as a tree. Now it's interesting use here of describing him like a tree planted by streams of water. You can imagine in the arid regions of the Middle East, you can understand that a flourishing tree would be a great simile here for the blessed man. You'll notice he's not just a a wild tree, or as my dad would say, a junk tree. It just haphazardly comes up. This is a tree intentionally planted by streams of water, cultivated. If one river should fail, there's still abundance there for the tree. It yields its fruit in its season. The blessed man yields good fruit in season at the right times. Charles Spurgeon says this, This man brings forth patience in the time of suffering, faith in the day of trial, and holy joy in the hour of prosperity. He is ready. He yields fruit. Have you ever said this of someone who's experiencing trial or or suffering? I hope I could respond in the way they respond to suffering. I just don't know. If I went through what he or she is going through, I don't know if I could respond as well as them. Wow, they're an amazing Christian. I'm going to put them up on this pedestal because that's a Christian, and I don't know if lowly me could respond that way that they are. You ever had that thought? I know I have. What that person has tapped into is not only available for them. It's available to all of us. As we meditate on God's word day and night and we experience extreme suffering and hardship, we can still find joy. We can still find joy. Because our greatest problem as believers is taken care of. My fate is sealed. I know that I have a place in heaven. And my worst problem, worse than anything I can suffer from, my worst problem was I was was separated from God for eternity. And I was going to spend time in hell for eternity. And Jesus came and paid it. And when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be when we all see Jesus. We'll sing and shout the victory, won't we? So we can respond to suffering just like that person that we tend to put on the pedestal. pedestal. It goes on in verse 3 to say that the leaf on this tree does not wither. The deeds of this man are not fleeting. They last 
not only does this fruit last, but the leaves last as well. And and he prospers. The fruit this man produces is not for himself, but for others. The prospering here is not the prospering prospering of himself or gaining money or wealth or anything like that. His life blesses others, and he prospers others. Now, in the front of my Bible, I have a list of those people, a list of those people that have prospered me because of their passion for God and his word. And these men have this one thing in common. These men delight in God's word. So there's a name there, Kent Cloder, who I know, and whenever I'm talking with Kent, if he takes his glasses off and puts them down on his desk, he's about to say something great. And so I listen when Kent takes off his glasses and looks to God's word to counsel me. My father-in-law, Denny Landwehr, when he says, let me ask you something, he has something he wants to share from me, to me, with, from God's word. My friend Kevin Martin, when his voice gets so low, you can barely hear it. He's instructing me from God's word. My friend Daniel Bennett, when he starts this question, what do you think is, he's about to ask me a question about the Bible and encourage me to think rightly about it. When my friend Mike Chambers says, got time for a quick question? It means he wants to talk to me about God's, God's word. This list is longer than just these five names. And there will be more names, I'm sure. But these are men that, among many other men and women at my church, whose leaves do not wither, who yield fruit and prosper me and others. What does it look like to have the Bible be your delight? To make the Bible your thing? To be like the tree? Well, I asked some Christian friends these two questions in an email and asked them to respond to me. Here are the two questions I asked them. I said, what makes God's word delightful to you? And what passage in particular is delightful to you? And here's some of the responses I got from my friend Craig. He said, I often struggle with keeping an eternal perspective in life. Work draws me into all kinds of struggles of a very temporary nature. I delight in having God's word bring his amazing character and purposes back into focus. As Colossians 3.1 says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. My friend Tony sent back this answer. He said, I delight in God's word for many reasons. One thing that God is teaching me more and more is that he is in complete control of everything and he's sovereign. It's not just the good in the good things, but in all things, even the hard things going on in my life or the things that I don't understand why they're happening. God's word helps remind me that I can find delight in trusting him completely through everything. Passages like Psalm 56 and Proverbs 3 point me in that direction. I asked my friend Kent, who I mentioned earlier, what makes God's word delightful to you? And he said, in John 1, shows me Jesus. In Jeremiah 15, it brings rejoicing to my heart. In Proverbs 1, it shows me wisdom. In Psalm 119, it shows me companionship. In 2 Timothy 3, it gives me answers. In Psalm 46, it shows me refuge and strength. In Romans 15, it gives me endurance, encouragement, and hope. In Psalm 19, stability, clear thinking, and wisdom. In Psalm 19, 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. And the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes, and on and on and on. These are the testimonies of people that I believe 
are delighting in God's word day and night. And I believe some of those people are here in this room as well. So the title of the sermon was The Tale of Two, and I've spent most of my time talking about the first person. So I won't go longer than Josh, I promise. But what's the second person? If it's a tale of two, who's the second person here? Well, point two in your notes is this, the wicked man, and he despairs. The wicked man despairs. Let's look at verse four, back in Psalm one. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So who are the wicked here in this psalm? To the Hebrew reader, the wicked are those who chose to live outside of God's moral standards laid out by the Torah. Even those from within Israel, too, possibly. So as we make the leap from the Old Testament to today, I believe we see the wicked as those who believe, follow, and live by worldly ways outside of the scripture and are not justified or innocent before Christ. And they're described like chaff. Well, what is chaff? You know, threshing is basically when you take that wheat and you squeeze and beat the grain out of the wheat stalks. Winnowing is when you use the wind to blow what you've beaten out, the dead stuff, out so that you have the wheat left there. What that stuff that blows away is called is chaff. So there are many different ways of blowing away the chaff after you you beat into that wheat. Um, You could take fans or sometimes it's just natural wind and easily blow away that chaff. Whatever method you use to do that, chaff is unwanted and chaff is not needed. It is easily blown away. Even pouring the grain into another container with a light wind back and forth a few times can cause that chaff to blow away. Now think of the contrast here. You have a tree planted by streams of water, prospering fruits and leaves, growing deep roots about abundance. Then, chaff's gone. Blow on this. Is that going to disappear? Stop. Blow on this. Is it going to disappear? It is. It is. The wicked are like chaff, easily blown away. These counselors that we as believers can be so tempted to walk and stand and sit with are dead spiritually. Their hearts are darkened. They cannot understand spiritual things according to Colossians chapter 2 and chapter 3. Do we arrogantly make fun of them? Not at all. Our hearts break for those people. We take the gospel to them. We minister to them. We want them to understand the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. But at this point, they are not welcomed by God. Verse 6 says that they will perish. If you go back at verses 5 and 6, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The easy application for this is to throw off worldly counsel. 
to look to God's word. Why would we consider worldly counsel at all when we have the counsel from the very mouth of God? There are many man-created insights that are descriptive, but shouldn't be prescriptive. What I'm saying there is man can often describe things that are helpful for insights into our lives. But to say that man's wisdom can prescribe how we should live our lives is outside of the counsel of God. Being descriptive versus prescriptive is quite different. The scripture provides the believer with life-giving counsel and joy. Why would we look anywhere else? While our flesh tells us to delight in the things other than God's word, look at this great insight I have. And our pride builds up. We hear the call of God saying, delight not in those things. Delight in my book. Delight in my word. It gives you life because it points you to the greatest thing you could ever delight in, God himself. Well, I want to end my sermon this morning where I began with the testimony of the woman in the counseling room that I read at the start. Thankfully, that wasn't the end of her story. I left that counselor's office more confused than ever. A friend shared with me about a biblical counseling ministry. It was open to everyone and free of charge. Immediately I knew this was a second chance for me to get godly counsel. After a few easy phone calls and a few emails, I had an appointment with my new counselor. I was thankful for another shot at receiving help, but fearful that I may never find the answers for which I was so desperately searching. I arrived at my first appointment. After I spent a while sharing my life experiences, failures, and hurts, my tears cried out for help in a way that my proud heart was unable. And then I was asked to open my Bible. My heart leapt and was immediately put at ease knowing this was the place and these were the people who could help me find truth for my problems grounded in God's wisdom, not man's advice. I met with my new counselor two or three times, and at each session, he literally had me read scripture to answer the questions I was asking. Question after question, he presented me with answers sovereignly planted in the word of God. The Holy Spirit took a hold of my heart and challenged my thinking in a place so deep I could no longer deny my sin. I needed to change. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who could understand it? My imperfect marriage wasn't the root of my problem. My own heart was. I spent years listening to unbiblical teachers on TV who presented themselves as God's representatives, misusing his word and leading me astray. They taught me to focus not on becoming more like Christ by his power and his love, but to focus totally on myself, my power, and my desires for my life. Now finally the truth was coming together for me little by little as I kept my center on my almighty father. I would have liked, I would have to write an entire book to be able to share every lesson I learned on this journey, but the most important change was my focus on God's word being the complete and utter truth. Every answer I have ever needed and will ever need it is right there between Genesis and
in Revelation. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for this book that shows us our sin, shows us our great need for a Savior, and shows us how to have that relationship with that Savior. So Lord, if there's anyone in this room who has not yet made that decision to receive Christ as Savior and Lord, I pray they would consider that today. The call is urgent. We don't know how much longer we have on this earth. And there's a chance right now, today, to make that decision to give their life 